podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Jones! Bowden! He's got it! England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins! Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four and England have won the match! Hello, welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. Simon Hughes and Simon Mann with you here. The inseparability of England and New Zealand in one-day cricket continues after drawing that T20 series, two-all. It's now one-all in the ODI series, a sort of legacy of that amazing match, the 2019 World Cup final, of course. And they play each other the first match of the World Cup, uh, October the 5th as well in Ahmedabad. So we'll consider the implications of that, how both teams are looking, how they're shaping up, how one or two other teams are shaping up for for the World Cup. And also we're going to look at the subject that cropped up last week, which was of interest, hearing that a couple of bids have come in for Yorkshire, for Headingley. One from Mike Ashley, the former Newcastle United owner, and one, of course, from the Rajasthan Royals and their owner, Manoj Badali. So we'll talk about that a bit later. But ODIs, New Zealand, England... They always seem to be incredibly close and no one can separate them, Simon. Well, they, they can't separate them in terms of the scores in the series, 2-2 two, two and 1-1. One, one. But the games themselves have actually been extremely one-sided. In fact, all six matches have been really one-sided. And England yesterday didn't look like it was going to be a one-sided game. I think they needed that. I thought they were really quite off it in Cardiff. You thought, hold on a second, a month ago until the World Cup, you putting in a performance like that I know the World Cup is you know when, when it comes around you're really focused on that and these are you know glorified warm-up games but I just felt they needed it for their confidence a bit you know if they'd lost four in a row to New Zealand albeit two in T20s and two in one day internationals you know there might be start to be a few uh, question marks flying around I, I thought New Zealand were going to win yesterday I mean half, sort of halfway through their innings they looked right on track to, to win the game but they just sort of fell away quite badly. A couple of wickets in and over. Daryl Mitchell out off a full toss. And England, in the end, well, they thumped them, didn't they? 79 runs. Who would have thought that when they were 28 for four? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's sort of extraordinary. And a fantastic performance by, by Liam Livingston, which I, I think an important innings for him because, mm. firstly, you know, there's been this fact knocking around for, for, for some time now that he hasn't faced... 50 balls in one innings for two years in any cricket. It's extraordinary, isn't it, yours yeah. in a way? It's yeah. an extraordinary fact. How you uh, manage to kind of maintain your batting rhythm when you haven't faced 50 balls in any innings. I mean, even I managed to face 50 balls in innings a few times, and <laughs> it's uh, it, it really is important. Uh, so, I, what, but what I thought was right, quite interesting about his innings, I mean, he had a great opportunity because England were 50 for five or something, but also I thought instead of just going and doing his usual thing, which is trying to belt everything over mid-wicket and long on, he did actually hit some shots on the offside. And a few people have... Uh, made the point, you know, analysis of his batting has said, you bowl outside off stump, he can't score kind of thing. Well, actually, he disproved that. Uh, He did a beautiful, I thought, one of his best shots was a lovely little steer between short third man and short cover for four. A very kind of Dhoni-like, Butler-like shot with touch and feel and, and, you know, placement rather than just bludgeoning it in, over the leg side. And he hit a couple of other nice shots through the offside, one over extra cover, one through the covers. So he showed that, you know, when I watch him bat, and when I watch a lot of batters bat, I look at their grip 
right? And you know, as this is a, me, me as the bowler coming out, and where would I set the field to him? And well, apart from the fact that with Livingston, you'd probably put put about four people in the crowd in small grounds. Uh, it, it, he has a very strong bottom-handed grip, and you can see the blade often turned in towards the leg side. So you know, as a bowler, that he's going to be inclined towards the leg side all the time, and it makes it harder for a batter to hit through the offside if that blade is is slightly choked, if you like, turned in towards the leg side. But he he is able somehow to sort of maybe loosen his bottom-handed grip slightly and still he has been able, in that last innings anyway, to drive through the offside. So that just shows an extra ingredient and, and a good mental lesson there as well that he was able to bail England out of that position. Mm. Yeah, think about close face, think about test cricket, think about someone like Graham Smith don't you? you know, that close face where everything was pretty much going through the leg side, so strong through the leg side. You could occasionally hit uh, through the offside when he, when he just loosened uh, the grip, but that's sort of like a, a, a parallel in test cricket, I suppose. It's easy to think of you know, Liam Livingston, because we've seen so much of him I think, in white ball cricket, in, in all sorts of competitions around the world, as being a very experienced one-day international player. Uh, that was only his 14th one day yesterday. Only his 14th. And his second half century so you know everyone said oh you feel like he needed it but actually he's not played a huge amount only one half century before yesterday but you're right isn't it I mean it's so useful to have a player of that ability coming in lower down the order and yeah he, he played responsibly and he, he probably kick himself a little bit that he didn't get 100 because he had he had two balls to nail it didn't he at the end there and he got two leg stump full tosses or the, the, the penultimate ball it could easily have disappeared into the crowd for six anyway I think he would have taken 95 not out when he walked out indeed I think the other day in Cardiff as well he, he, what, he, he made 40 odd the other day didn't he he came in after 38 overs he probably would have taken that as well so you know he was able to get England up to a a reasonable score I actually thought in Cardiff that 291 was a was a perfectly defendable score it wasn't a great pitch in Cardiff it was a bit just a bit grippy a bit slow I thought you know 290 you know nearly 300 might you know take a bit of getting but it was such a tame England bowling performance it's quite worrying I thought you just thought you know World Cup mm, good luck with this but yesterday I think they were they, they, they somehow managed to fashion wickets yesterday perhaps it was a bit more pace and bounce in the pitch yesterday it was easier to get people out it was in Cardiff slow and a bit low and I thought New Zealand played really well I mean Conway and Mitchell I mean they're superb weren't they they're such key players for New Zealand well and it was it was worrying the way they just dismissed England spinners with a couple of strokes down the ground I mean they were hitting them at will in Cardiff I mean they were hitting them at will over over straight over the side screen practically and Rashid looked uh, ineffective but sh- I, I, such I, short straight boundaries though yours it, 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 it I mean, is ridiculous, a short, straight, ridiculously is a short, short straight boundary but it is ridiculously short obviously I mean you're in danger in the commentary box there aren't you actually mm. uh, yeah I, I don't know but I just felt that Rashid didn't have an answer to it and there are going to be grounds in India with fairly short straight boundaries as well um, I, I don't know. The thing is, I, I made this point before. He does look to bowl in a slightly more old-fashioned spinning way. He looks to pitch a ball up. In fact, when he was hit for two or three sixes by Mitchell, he lobbed it up even slower and higher, and nearly got him out for, to his credit. But I feel that if he does get attacked, especially down the ground, I'm not sure what options he has to go to. There's so many players now who are very good at getting back on their stumps as soon as a spinner drops short without the the, the momentum of a, a Rashid Khan or a Jadeja who bowled really flat darts, 
if you haven't got that ability, your shorter ball can be deposited over deep mid wicket. There are so many players who can just get back onto their stumps very quickly and using fast hands, smack you over long long leg or deep mid wicket for six. And I, I worry about Rashid's ability there because also, you know, his deception is something which has held him up very well. And he bowls a lot of balls with the seam going straight down the wicket, scrambled seam to kind of try and disguise which way the ball is spinning. But I think people, batters are getting more aware of him now. I mean, he's played a lot of cricket, obviously, so they're becoming a little bit more aware of, of his deception and, and un, un, you know, unravelling his ability in a way. I think with the, the second match at the, the GS Bowl, there was a bit more extra bounce in the pitch, which England's taller seamers could use, and they were less reliant on spin. Mm. What about Rashid's shoulder? I mean, shoulder's such an important element, isn't it, of, of leg spin bowling? There's so much shoulder in it. Mm. Yeah, and he's had problems. with One of the reasons he retired from first-class cricket was to protect his shoulder and enabling him to play in these games. Shane Warne had a lot of problems with his, with his shoulders. It does take a huge amount out of you, and I'm sure that's a problem. And you might not even know it inside but it just gradually gets a bit weaker and you can't quite impart the amount of spin the amount of overspin and things like that on the ball that you want to so yeah I I mean it would be a concern for me that Mm. England's batting in Southampton 28 for four some tame shots good swing bowling Harry Brook was up there opening the batting again you know it looks like they're giving him a chance I know Jason Roy's out with a, a back spasm and Johnny Bairstow missed the uh, first game how did he look by the way how does Jason Roy look I mean you were in Cardiff well I, I, I don't know I mean he just had a, he had a, the word was he had a back spasm and of course he didn't play again in, in the next match I mean it's, it's it's an awkward thing to have isn't it I mean they, they, it's happened before to him and it comes every now and again anyone who has you know, back problems. You know, you, you wake up, oh, and it's, and then it, it can sort of go away again. But you, you sort of need to get on the field. Uh, I mean, the World Cup's coming. I'm sure he feels that himself. In, but you, you often, you're, of course, your body tells you uh, when you're ready. You can't really force it uh, with a bad back. Well, you can't really force it with quite a lot of injuries, uh, to be honest. He only made 150 in the in the hundred. There were a few sort of usefulish scores, some some twenties and things like that, which can get a team off to a, a quick start in the hundred. But he, he has made two hundreds in his last six One Day Internationals. Yeah, I mean he revived his. He very much revived his career in South Africa with a, with a superb hundred. You know, almost a year ago, or eight or nine months ago now. And I thought that was him coming back again because he'd had a, a period of low scores. But I watched him in the hundred as well. And I mean, I was at the Oval one day and I, he looked totally out of it. He was opening the batting with Will Jacks and Will Jacks was smacking it to the boundary and Roy couldn't lay a bat on it. Mm. And uh, there's been a lot of slightly uh, sort of... People have written him off a little bit. I mean, on social media, some of the people who've watched Surrey or the Oval Invincibles quite a bit have said, you know, he just doesn't look as if he's got it anymore. Um it's a bit harsh because you never lose what you've got, but I feel everything is just not working quite as smoothly as it was. It everything he looks a little bit slower, a little bit sl- more sluggish, and you know it's just fractions of a second, isn't it? But so there's something about his game which doesn't look quite right. Mm. Well, he's, he, it's, we're not seeing him at the moment because he's you know, he's not been on the field, um, so he, he needs. Obviously, needs to get fit, doesn't it? I mean, it's interesting that, that Brooke was re- preferred to Milan 
uh, yesterday. I mean, if you think about, I mean, I know you're sort of having a look, aren't you, at players? But Milan is in the World Cup squad, the provisional World Cup squad, and Brook's not. It's it's almost as if they're giving Brook a chance at the top of the order. You know, having a look at him, see what he's capable of. Because I can't. It's hard to see him playing in the middle order, isn't it? I mean, you know, that middle order is is chock full. You've got Root, you've got Stokes, you've got uh, Butler, you've got Livingston, you've got Moen Ali, uh, and you know they might need to perm different um, lower order all rounders in the World Cup, depending on the, the the pitches. But it's not easy for him to get in in that middle order. So the top order is the place where he could, in in theory. Uh, get in and if you've got injuries you've got people who are you know perhaps not the right type of player then there is an option for him but uh, not really take not he's not really taken his chance so far he's had a few actually disappointing innings both t20 and in one day international he played in a very particular way in cardiff he sort of waited by this time very much sort of against england's sort of what we've seen from england over the say over the last six years in or seven years in in one day international cricket and then he got out and of course then Yesterday, it was a strange shot, sort of very a really tame dismissal. Uh, that's a bit of a hint of a leading edge, looking to clip it into the onside, just balloon one straight up to uh, mid on. It was, it, yeah, it was, a, it was a really odd shot, actually, or odd looking shot, anyway. I, I suppose it, it shows that experience as an opener is really important in 50 over cricket because you need to be able to read the conditions quickly and yeah. know what are the the, the good shots to play, what are the risky shots to play. And that's where Roy and Bairstow have been excellent. You know, they've understood the conditions. They've tried a couple of their familiar shots early on and either they've worked or they haven't. And then they've quickly got the idea of, firstly, what are the, the, the legitimate ways to, to bat in those first 10 overs? What are the kind of the, the, the bankers and what are the risky shots? And also perhaps even what is a good score on this pitch? Uh, it's going to change. A pitch nature is going to change a little bit during a 50-over spell, but you can at least get some sense from the first five to ten overs of what it's going to be like. And that experience that Roy and Bairstow have is invaluable. Whereas you feel with Brooke, as you pointed out there, he was kind of not quite sure what was a legitimate shot. You know, how much was the ball doing? Can I risk hitting it on the up over the top? And he played slightly too orthodoxly. But, but, you know, he's, he's inexperienced at, the, at this level. And that's why, it, it really, he wasn't included in the original squad. Yeah. Well, in, in, inexperienced, full stop at the top of the order. He has played there a bit, hasn't he? But he, he hasn't done it uh, very much. So, yeah, yeah there are, they're sort of asking something of him that he hasn't done so far. It does take a while. I mean, the point being about Bairstow and, and Roy as England's opening partnership, it's been so successful. It's been one of the most successful partnerships in the history of one-day international cricket. So... You can see why England want to give it an opportunity and 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 hope it works for them in the World Cup. Uh, um, do you, do you see even at this stage? I mean, Milan came, made a, a nice half century in Cardiff. Actually, a bizarre dismissal. Really, it was a really weird one. The bowler was appealing for LBW, and he actually bowled him. It was such a it was such a strange one. He hit sort of, those you haven't seen. He sort of hit him on the pad. And as he in his forward motion, and then as, as his gloves came back, he seemed to knock the ball back onto the stumps. And I think the umpire, well, the bowler was was appealing, and I think the umpire even raised his finger. And Milan was walking off bowl. It was it was anyway. It was a really odd dismissal. But he made half century. I, I mean, do you think his place is is in any way under threat, or do you think he's absolutely nailed in, uh, David oh, Milan? I, I suppose he's nailed in. I, yeah. I, I mean, I have said on this podcast before that maybe he's the vulnerable one, but his record is amazing, and he does keep delivering. And and he is that point of difference from most of the others in that 
he obviously left-handed, but also hits the ball in slightly different places, and he he plays a slightly different tempo. And there'll be pitches in India that where he struggles, but there'll be pitches in India where he which he enjoys. So, I, I guess he's he's a, a very good foil for everyone else. How does he get in the team, though? I'm just thinking, how does he get in the team? Because if you have Bairstow and Roy at the top of the order, then Root at three, Stokes at four, Butler at five, Livingston six, and then the all-rounders, Moen, Wokes, whatever, at, at seven. It's not. He's a utility player who comes in for someone who's out of form or not uh, or not selected um, or injured. And he can play, he can open. So if you've got Roy with a back yeah. spasm... He can play. He can yeah. open if he's if Root's struggling or you know got an injury. I mean, Root has some occasional back issues as well. He can bat like Root. Uh, you know, he can come in probably five or six if Stokes is his knee is struggling or something. I suppose so. He's he's a, he's someone they can depend on. Whereas at the moment, Brook isn't. Yeah. So one one with with two to play. I think they'd be glad to see the back of each other for the, for a while, for a couple of weeks, won't they? England and New Zealand they played six times already. Two more to go. We've got the Oval and Lords this week, and I think what will be interesting is to see England's team selection for the last two matches. You know, does Milan come in? Does Brook continue to play? Does Roy, you know, get himself fit and, and get on the park and and get some runs. So those games are coming up this week. And also bowling as well, I guess, just as, as a final point, what bowlers they pick. Because Gus Atkinson has done decently, hasn't he? He looks, again, someone you can trust, I think. You know, he's got a nice, consistent action. Mm. Doesn't do a huge amount with the ball, but he keeps that pace going and he's got variety. And it's which of the left armers, I suppose, they choose. Sam Curran's going to definitely be there because of his all-round ability. And then it's a choice between Topley and, and, and David Willey, I suppose. So, yeah, let's look out for, for who they pick on Wednesday. Yeah, it's actually interesting just on the on the balls. Three left-arm pace bowlers in the same team and then a quick bowler. Um, presumably Atkinson and Wood might be vying for a spot in World Cup teams. You might play one one game and then one the other. They, they, I mean, they might play them both together, but I'm not, not so sure about that. And then then your spin options. It's in- interesting. It's a very different sort of a, a attack from England. You have three left armers. Uh, it's, you know, you think think of left arm bowlers in T20 a lot, don't you? I mean, they, they, they've been shown to be pretty effective. Three left armers in a one-day international. I, I wonder if they'll go with that in the World Cup. But you can definitely see two left armers uh, playing it in a game for England, you know, somewhere along the line. So you've been monitoring one or two other countries as well, haven't you? And you've spotted something about Sri Lanka, haven't you, leading into the World Cup? Yeah, well, Sri Lanka, who were, I, go, I think back to 1996, and I remember seeing them in a game in Delhi. They were, they were, sort of, they were underdogs. No, they were sort of totally under the radar. I saw them in a game in Delhi against India where they, they just dismissed India. Just, India got back to 70, and Sri Lanka just knocked them off in no time at all, and you know, the rest is history. We know, you know what they came up with, that, that sort of dramatic, um, beguiling, attacking opening uh, batting that they produced and they went on to to win that World Cup well they're going into this World Cup so far they have won 13 one day internationals in a row we saw them in England a, a while back and they looked pretty ordinary team and England swept them aside but in Indian conditions with with lots of spin and the experience of playing on those sorts of pitches you, you think they might well be a factor in this World Cup 
but they have, and they have won 13 matches in a row, which is phenomenal. But I did have a look at who they'd beaten. So you have to have some context to that. So they've beaten Afghanistan, the UAE, Oman, Ireland, Scotland, Netherlands, West Indies, Zimbabwe and Bangladesh. So those are the teams that they have beaten. There's still a bit more of the Asia Cup to come. So if they were to progress, do well, get to the final, possibly even win it, then, yeah, they might well uh, come into contention uh, in the World Cup. It's going, to be, it's, it's going to be fascinating. But anyway, I just thought I'd mark your card about Sri Lanka. They did lose 3-0 to India in India earlier this year, and they did lose 2-0 to New Zealand in New Zealand earlier this year. So it's not all you know, roses uh, for Sri Lanka, but they are in pretty good form. And they bowled the teams out in all those games as well. So you know, they have got some potency, but how are they going to get on against uh, some of the, the bigger teams? Uh, in the Asia Cup, I mentioned that, that's still uh, going on. As we speak, India and Pakistan are trying to uh, beat the weather again on a, on a, a newly uh, installed a reserve day. The rules of the competition have changed halfway through to allow a reserve day for India against Pakistan. Very frustrating, I think, for those players. You know, you're battling the, the Sri Lanka rain. We should also just have a quick note on Australia, uh, yours. I mean, they're all, they always seem competitive. Uh, where, you know, wherever they are, they always seem competitive and they've got good players and they're, they're giving South Africa a real tough time. They, they aced them in the, in the T20 series and they won the first two one days as well. And our old friends... David Warner and Manus Labuschagne uh, scoring hundreds in their latest win. So, yeah, Australia, albeit in South African conditions, are warming up nicely. What an amazing story that was as well, wasn't it? Cameron Green getting yeah. concussed and Labuschagne coming in as that a was in the first. That was in the first game, yeah, in the second yeah. game, Labuschagne turning out with 100. So Labuschagne basically helped win them two games now with the bat. It was so weird looking mm. at the scorecard of that mm. first match where Labuschagne came in number eight, I think. And made eighty not out, and mm. Ashton Agar partnered him, and they were in t- that their innings was in ruins, and mm. they managed to pull out a, a victory from nowhere. So Labuschagne's inched his way back in, in the same way as I suppose Brooke with England suddenly made a case uh, for inclusion a couple of weeks ago as well. So fascinating to to see. I mean, it, it, it's all jockeying for position, isn't it? Mm. So all these teams are playing in the lead up to the World Cup, apart from it seems to me. Uh, the Netherlands, you just you just can't get a game of cricket anywhere, uh, which is you know which is really tough for them because they, I mean, did they expect to qualify? Well, they did magnificently, really. So their last One Day International was on the 9th of July when they lost to Sri Lanka in the qualifying tournament final. The top two already went through to the World Cup, so they didn't have to win the match. But they Sri Lanka uh, won that game. They do play two World Cup warm-up games just before the start of the tournament. Good luck to them. They're playing against. Australia and India. I'm just, I'm just on those uh, warm-up matches, uh, I noticed that, I mean, England have got a game in uh, Guwahati against India. I noticed that, that India have got two World Cup warm-up matches, one against England in Guwahati and one against the Netherlands in Trivandrum. And that is a three and a half thousand mile trip between warm-up games. I think they've got one game on the Saturday and one game on the Tuesday. It ju- it does just show and illustrate in a, in a country like India that it's not just the intensity of the games, but it's also the nature of the travel that you have to undergo as well to you know, to get you from A to B. I, I looked, I, I went on Google last night, I thought, how would you get from Gohati to Trivandrum? And it said it, it, it said... That, you know, just for the likes of you or me, Oz, it can take about a day to do the the journey. You know, phys- literally about twenty four hours. But I imagine they'll have a charter flight that'll 
get them there in about you know yeah three I hours. Mean, it or does something. seem it does. It's not exactly doing doing their bit for the, the, the you know the green planet, is it? Uh, the the amount of travelling required in this World Cup. I don't believe that many uh, of the the teams are going to be travelling by coach or truck. Do you remember we went to Dharamshala? From Delhi, yeah, we drove. And we drove there. That was a long way, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. that was about eight hours or something uh, from north from Delhi to into the foothills of the Himalayas. And it, I mean, it's not it's not great for the planet, especially when that G20 summit's going on at the moment <laughs> <laughs> in India. It's not really doing its best for it, is it? 1996 World Cup. I did actually get get around on the train and and driving as well. There was one match that was being played in Gwalior. India were playing West Indies in Gwalior and I was on the train from Delhi to Gwalior and when I got there there was a massive crowd uh, to, to greet my arrival. They must have heard the BBC reporter was was coming to uh, Gwalior. Oh no it wasn't. The India team were on the train as well. Uh, you can't imagine that happening these days can you? The Indian team travelling by train to a fixture. They, they yeah, nip around on, on charter flights and things like that. I love the story of um, a, a one-day international between India and the West Indies. I can't actually remember the ground. It was one of those grounds that not slightly smaller venues, like indoor or camper or somewhere. And uh, the West Indies in India flew to the ground. They flew as normal to the to the venue, but the kit was because it was on a five-match tour. The kit uh, for all the players was in two big trucks, travelling by road. And when uh, it was due to start the match, the trucks had got stuck somewhere, as they do in India, and they hadn't arrived. So all these players were at the ground, ready to play, but no kit. So uh, what are they going to tell this massed audience expecting the game with a sunny day? They had to say that the pitch had got wet overnight and was waiting for it to dry uh, until the, you know, they obviously didn't tell them the truth. Eventually, the trucks arrived uh, sort of two or three hours late uh, for the players to get changed, and then it rained. <laughs> so they actually didn't get a game. Oh, silly. And uh, talking of India, I suppose, is a segue to talking about Headingley and Leeds and the story of the Rajasthan Royals being one of the bidders to bail Yorkshire out of their terrible debt crisis, the, the, the owing of over 15 million to Colin Graves Trust, the former chairman, and the fact that uh, there are at least a couple of bids to try and bail them out. I mean, it is an interesting story, which I can throw in a bit more detail on. What did you make of it? Well, I thought, it was, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting story because it was something we were talking about last week. You were talking about this, didn't we? our Rod Bransgrove interview last week, uh, which is, is still available to, to listen to, you know, talking about putting equity into county cricket clubs. What, OK, give us a bit more detail than you. Well, I mean, obviously, the, the, it's, a, it's a very severe situation and the, the options are to, to borrow the money, which, which won't be easy, uh, or to take on one of these two bids. Now, Mike Ashley, a lot of listeners will know of, um, not only because of his ownership of sportswear shops around the country, but also, uh, of course, because he owned Newcastle United. And I don't think he was a popular owner of Newcastle United. I think that's an understatement. And they were well rid of him in the end. And he's bid £23 And I've heard that he's quite good friends with the CEO at Yorkshire, Stephen Vaughan, so maybe that's uh, given him a bit of a window onto the club. 
And the other bid is from the Rajasthan Royals, who have been trying to kind of expand their global footprint over the last three or four years. I, I suppose I'm slightly biased on this story because I've worked for the Rajasthan Royals and Manoj Badali, their lead owner, is a good friend. Um, I haven't actually spoken to him about this because he's been he's been away, but but I know what their their philosophy will be, and actually I think it's a good idea because yeah. What's their plan? What's the plan behind this idea? Well, I mean, what or what's the reasoning behind it? The reasoning yeah, behind yeah. it is that really you've got once you own the club, you own the ground, and the ground has so much opportunity, as Rod Bransgrove's proved with with uh, with Hampshire. There's so much opportunity to do things with that ground, uh, both cricket-wise and non-cricket things. Going back to the the, the 2006 sort of era, Manoj Badali actually bought into the commercial rights of Leicester to help an ailing club and also find ways of, of monetizing the ground by thing at the time things like having events on the field, outside the obvious playing hours or outside the obvious playing days, things like big weddings and things like that with a big Asian community in Leicester and lots of other kind of events, trying to build on that. But he found that difficult because uh, at the time the ECB were fairly uh, a closed shop. They didn't like outside ownership. They didn't like people kind of meddling with, with their routines. I mean, he, he wanted to try and stage... Uh, a sort of Champions League type event uh, at, Le- at Leicester as well towards the end of the season. And it, there was a half-hearted attempt at doing that, but it was difficult because of things like broadcast rights and ECB rights over teams and scheduling and all that. Whereas now things are a bit looser because of the 100. So the opportunity to do things like, uh, here's one sort of random idea, a three-match India-Pakistan T20 series at, he- at Headingley. You know, what an incredible audience that would generate. I mean, India and Pakistan never play each other, except in World Cups or except in Asia Cups. And, uh, you know, that Australia were talking about the opportunity when there was that huge T20 in Melbourne during the World T20. And it went to the last ball and all that amazing match watched by, I don't know, three or four hundred million around the world, as well as 90,000 in the stadium. You know, in Australia, we're talking about the, the opportunity. Maybe they should try and stage a three-match series between India and Pakistan. It hasn't come off. But I can see that opportunity at Headingley. And I suppose the other thing is is just the, 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 the other things you could do at the ground. And actually, one of Manoj Badali's businesses, he's a, an entrepreneur, tech entrepreneur, and some of his businesses are in education. And, of course, there is a big tie-up with Leeds Beckett University at Headingley. And that Carnegie Pavilion is used for lecture theatres and tutorials and so on. So I can actually see a, quite a synergy there. But it, it, and there are just I think there's just so much other scope around the ground. Of course, the hotel at Southampton has been a, a, a big success. Maybe there's there could be plans to build a hotel at Headingley as well. They need one round there. <laughs> so, but what's it? So, what's in it for Yorkshire? Presumably to get solvent. Basically, the club's in financial mess. I think not only to get solvent, but but actually to to make money. I mean, to actually be profitable. And if you look at the record, I mean, obviously the Rajasthan Royals uh, and all the other IPL franchises make a huge amount of money, and that they have the the massive influence and an advantage of India and the population and the fact that cricket is a religion and also the the massive broadcast rights. So it, it, to them, you know, profit is 
is a, quite an easy thing. In English cricket, it's not because of the expense of running a team and a ground. And the, the, I think I would say the generally inadequacy of marketing the game in this country, the fact that it's not on terrestrial TV. Uh, you know, many there are many reasons, not in state schools, you know, there are many reasons why cricket is a bit of a struggle to market in this country. But I think the Royals and other IPL franchises, if it wasn't them, would be very good at that by just utilising social media and all their kind of outlets. But it's, it's about also expanding your global footprint in the same way as football clubs go and play abroad, Manchester United go and tour the States or Japan or somewhere like that, and you're increasing your own following as well. This is a sort of a sideline to that in a way, including uh, increasing your reach and influence around the world, which in the end you know, feathers your own nest, but it helps other people along the way as well. So if I was a Yorkshire member, I would actually look at this in a very positive way and say, don't fear the encroachment of an IPL franchise on, on Yorkshire and the great traditions of the club. I think actually it will build on it and actually make it even greater than it, than it once was. And one other a story this week, yours, cricket in the Olympics, Los Angeles in 2028. Very exciting, isn't it? Uh, I think. Uh, I mean, it's interesting actually. When I saw that story first um, written about, I read the the readers' comments, and a lot of people were quite negative about it, saying, "You know, leave our sport alone. We don't want it in the Olympics." But I think I think you have to look at it in a in a more wholesome way, actually. And you know, if if it means that uh, the Chinas and Japan's and you know, the other countries which aren't immediately associated with cricket get drawn into it. I think it's great for the game in the end. Um, obviously, India are the key in cricket at the Olympics because they are they have a vote, obviously, a very important vote. And they've been a bit reluctant to be involved in the past. But I think now the idea that, uh, that you can win a gold medal, uh, something that Indian athletes have rarely done at the Olympics is a great incentive and I think the Olympic Committee, the IOC, see you know, a, 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 that, that as an opportunity to draw India into the Olympic brotherhood, if you like. Uh, and so you know, it works well for both sides. And the Olympics at 2028 is in LA where there will be a big cricket stadium built uh, in due course as part of the development for MLC, Major League Cricket, which obviously got underway this year. So uh, I, it sounds as if it's all been rubber stamped and it's going to happen. It's going to be T20. It's going to have to be compartmentalised into a sort of fairly short space of time during the Olympics. But to me, it's brilliant for the game. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah, definitely. It means you can get India playing Pakistan again, presumably as well. But you're right. I mean, you're right about if you can get someone like China involved. I mean, imagine the potential for playing cricket in China vast isn't it well and also if, if it also really i mean if, if skateboarding is an olympic sport <laughs> then cricket surely should be yeah i mean they, 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 it seems i mean i don't follow this closely enough in terms of which, which sports are in which particular olympics but it seems like you know there, there are sports that become in vogue and out of vogue don't they one gets jocked off and another one uh, comes in so yeah it could well be uh, cricket's turn in 2028 just talking about cricket in america brings us back full circle in a way i noticed that trent bolt's last match uh, before yesterday was in the MLC final for Mumbai, New York. Um, and he came back with some wickets yesterday, but not on 
uh, the winning side for New Zealand. We'll find out by the end of the week who is going to win this series. Whether they are, it'd be typical, wouldn't it, if they end up at 2-2 again and going into that World Cup match in Ahmedabad. Almost that feeling of like not much separating the two sides. Although, as you said, the games have been uh, very one-sided. Anyway, two more games to go this week. The Oval and then Lords. And we'll speak to you on Saturday to round up the series. Oh, and by the way, don't forget to check out our sister podcast, Storylines, with Melissa Story and Nikki Chowdhury, all about the women's game. Uh, in this week's episode, they have a really interesting interview with the young emerging England player, Maya Bouchier, who was formerly from Middlesex and then moved down to the South Coast. Really talented young player. Check out that interview on Storylines, which is also out this week. Sports Social Podcast Network.